Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Everybody seems to be saying this morning and over the last few weeks, expect volatility. This is the line from City. Expect volatility because we are no longer at the beginning of this cycle. Leadership becomes less clear at this time in the cycle. And while the leadership will narrow, it can also be quite choppy. Let's get to Christine Bitterly, City Regional Head of Investments for North America's. Christine, let's start there. Why should we expect volatility? So when we look at any cycle, right, when you're you're looking at the beginning of a cycle, that's where you see the strongest rallies. And we've seen that over the past 12 months. We've seen essentially everything moving up. And, and there's been periods of different leadership, very clear periods of whether it was growth versus value, COVID defenses versus COVID cyclicals. But now the leadership isn't quite clear. And so one of the things that has investors very, very nervous and why we're expecting volatility is that realized volatility in U.S. equity markets are at the lowest end of the 20-year range in the single digits. And you can see this through the market action that we've seen. We've not had one pullback of 5% or more in 2021. This has only happened twice since 19. 80. And while we've had a couple of pullbacks of about 3%, they've been bought very, very quickly. And so I, I think this has a lot of investors wondering, okay, will we actually see realized volatility rise? And will that put us into what is actually a pretty normal equity market of a couple pullbacks of 5% or more and even up to one of 10%. But Kristen, is this the same equity market as 10, 20, 30 years ago? And I'm looking at the dominance of the big names. I'm looking at the composition that has actually performed very differently depending on which sector of the market you're looking at. I mean, can we get a broad-based 5% drawdown given how much money and given how selective people are with respect to sector selection? Yeah, it's a great point, right? When we're looking at the, the rally that we've seen even year to date, there has been a lot of breakdown in correlation. So up until even recently, right, the underperformance of small caps, when you look at what we went through with, with the Delta variant, almost like a mini kind of what we went through last year in terms of tech coming out ahead as opposed to value really dominating the first um, half of the year. I think what the market is gonna differentiate going forward, and this is where we're allocating in our portfolios, is to quality. So this becomes much more a conversation around those companies with strong balance sheets that have the ability to grow their earnings, have the ability to grow their dividends, which is very important in this rates environment. And so earnings are really going to drive this conversation and fundamentals going forward. So a flight to quality, you have a lot of other calls to get a little bit more defensive within this equity market, Kristen, but is it time to go to cash? So we do not believe it's time to go to cash. So cash, there, there's really multiple purposes of cash, right, from an investor perspective. One, of course, have a safety net, have your operating cash, what you need. But in terms of an investment right now, when we look at the inflationary pressures, this is an asset that's guaranteed to lose money. And so if you want some tactical cash in your portfolio because you are there to buy the dip, you can confidently buy the dip. There's some value in that. But what we're seeing in a lot of investors' portfolios, and we've seen this for several months, is a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. So this is no longer about an investment decision. This is really someone trying to market time, which 
doesn't work in the short run or the long run for that matter. Kristen, just to conclude, I want to go through this research report and make it really clear some of the things that you're highlighting. Lumber down 72% since May. Iron ore down 30% in the same time period. Chinese equities down 30% since the middle of February. Brazilian equities getting hammered as well. U.S. small caps underperforming 20% since the middle of March. At the time of publishing, those numbers, I assume, were correct, and I'm sure they're still there and thereabouts the same. Kristen, what's the punchline here? So the punchline is despite a lot of the central bank support and liquidity, markets are differentiating, right? And that's that's quite healthy. I think what you need to do as an investor, again, always bringing this back to actionable ideas and, and what we can do within our portfolios, is this becomes a period of being selective, right? This is not a market of everything is going to go up, everything is going to win. And so being selective, not only in terms of regions of the world that you're in, as you've been discussing um, all morning, but also in terms of security selection, because there will be winners and losers based on fundamentals and earnings. Kristen, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us. Kristen Bidley there of City. People have missed out on the upside. How much becomes a Pavlovian response where if in doubt, buy, right? And this idea that if you miss out, you will just keep missing out because that's how it has been over the past 20 years. What breaks that paradigm? Let's ask Brent Shuley now. We can do that with Northwestern's Mutual Wealth Management Chief Investment Strategist. Brent, your words, investors and the three camps they fall into right now, those worried the economy is growing too fast, those worried growth is peaking, and those worried stock valuations are simply too high. Are you in any of those three camps right now, Brent? No, it was something we worried about. So we got to May or June, and economic growth was finally strong. COVID cases were declining, and we all sat around and thought about what is next. And I think as you've kind of been tweaking Lisa just a bit, people were worried about those three things occurring. That was where the worries were. We see each one of those subsiding as you move towards the end of the year. And that to us means a higher equity market led by more cyclical aspects of the market. So think value stocks, think uh, small cap stocks, and think the Eurozone. And so we do think there's room left to run. It's just you've had this defensive versus cyclicals. Uh, defenses have really won the day over the summer, but I think it's because of those three worries. And I think each one of those three pulls back into the end of the year. And I think that's the impetus for the rally that we expect to occur. Brent, let's try to put uh, some quantification around how much room there is to rally. What kind of returns are you expecting? Are you shooting for with the likes of a small cap bet at this point in the cycle? Well, I mean, I think everything is less than it was before, correct? And so if I think back to last year, we went overweight equities with an uncertain outcome, but the, but the opportunity set was so wide. I think about today, I'm a bit more certain about what the economy holds pushing forward. There are still, as always, uncertainties, but the opportunity set is smaller. And so I think about relative performance more. And I think small caps are set to outperform their large cap counterparts. And the Eurozone is set to outperform probably both of those. Uh, and so much, much more muted returns. But still, in the context of a 10-year treasury, as you open the show at 132, 133, whatever it is today, stocks are still a relative valuation uh, advantage towards bonds. And that isn't changing until yeah. the 10-year treasury changes. And that's still where central banks are impacting the most. Well, Brent, I'm glad you brought that up because we were having a conversation in the previous hour about big tech and how it was kind of unusual that we had record highs for the FANG stocks yesterday on a day when yields actually rose. But when we saw the low for the NASDAQ 100 this year, it was on March 8th, and the 10-year treasury yield was at 160 on that day. We are still 25 basis points below that. So can you make a case really against big tech if yields kind of stay in this range? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of an economic growth and what's keeping the treasury in that range. And so is it tapering? Is it distortion? Is it just a lot of liquidity around the globe? Um, I, I just think the small cap and the cyclical trade to me is more tied to strong economic growth that I think people were worried about plateau or peaking. Um, if anything, it's a plateau. You have companies with huge amounts of new orders, huge backlogs of order uh, and low inventories. You have consumers with incredibly strong balance sheets who've probably been pushed out just a bit because of what Delta has done. And so I think you continue to see uh, economic growth that remains strong. Um, I'm not for sure what the 10-year Treasury does. I expect it to have an upward bias as tapering is announced. But I think all those things point to an economic cycle that lasts just a bit longer and is a bit uh, higher for a while. Uh, and valuation, what I think many economic cycle investors are ignoring, still points to small caps and value stocks as being uh, cheap relative to their counterparts. Brent, you mentioned small caps, small caps over large caps. You mentioned cheap. A lot of people would say Europe cheap to the United States, and we've said that for a long, long time. You touched on the Eurozone and talked about the potential for outperformance there. What do you like about Europe, Brent? It's much more cyclically uh, inclined. And so the setup of the index is much more cyclical in nature. Europe's been cheap for a while. It was in need of a catalyst. It actually has that now. The central bank there has done things, quite frankly, that they hadn't done in the past. Germans have even gone on a fiscal spending spree. And so I just think that you have strong cyclical economic growth for really the first time in 10 years, 12 years. Uh, and I think that's a backdrop for Eurozone stocks finally being appreciated by investors. Brent, there's a column in The Telegraph uh, by uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard talking about how Germany does, though, seem to be losing patience with quantitative easing. Uh, they're starting to indicate perhaps they don't want to keep the pedal uh, going for as long as they have uh, for the foreseeable future. This really bleeds into the potential for taper talk tomorrow at the ECB meeting. If they were to start talkering, uh, talking about tapering their QE, would that change your view on Europe? Yeah, it's certainly a risk. And I, I think of um, the central banks right now as three yards in a cloud of dust. So sorry, Jonathan, just a different football game than you're used to. Um, but they're advancing the ball slowly to try not to get any market reaction. And I think central banks around the globe, I think people need to stop focusing on their day-to-day -day operations and focus on their action function. And it's still to do more, not to do less. Certainly the Eurozone, probably a bit less than the US. But in general, overall, central banks stand at the ready and will continue to do so until there's a cost on the other side. Right now, I know there's talk of inflation, but that cost is still relatively low. Interest rates are well-behaved, and they've failed in their mandate for 10 years. They're going to push as hard as they can for as long as they can, uh, as long as inflation allows them to do so. And I just think that as you move into the end of the year, inflation is going to pull back, and that uh, taper talk and everything else is going to subside just a bit. Is that football with the hands? I've not seen you it before. It. They, they use the, the hands for they that. They use their hands. Yes, okay. three yards in a cloud of dust. Okay, Dance wait. the ball slowly towards the goal line. Is this good? Is this, is this a good Tom Keen? It's an oblong Football round ball. With the hands. <laughs> with the hands. Brent, thank you. With your hands. Brent Shudu, Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management Chief Investment Strategist. I'm pleased to say that my good friend, my old buddy, Bloomberg's Manus Cranny, standing by in Cairo. Manus. Good to hear from you, sir. And just look at that chair. If only they could see this on radio. <laughs> a palatial Manus Cranny this morning. <laughs> Jonathan in New York, thank you very much for the welcome. Yes, we are in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. At a very timely moment, we're joined by His Excellency Sama Shokri, the Foreign Minister for Egypt. Sir, thank you for having us into your offices, a, a grand home it's an interesting time in our region. Biden is delivering on Trump's plan to leave Afghanistan. That is dumb. What does that mean for the Middle East for you? Well, certainly the uh, 
ongoing conflict in, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq has uh, burdened the region quite substantially over the years. And uh, the departure, of course, from uh, Afghanistan has its ramifications and uh, will be uh, followed and, and uh, deliberated upon within the context of uh, the Arab region. Tomorrow we have a, a meeting of the uh, Ministerial uh, Arab League, and that issue will will come will be a focus of discussions between the ministers. Undoubtedly, uh, a uh, transformation of this nature and this magnitude will uh, have interesting repercussions, and we await to see what those repercussions are in terms of uh, how the, the uh, new Taliban government will operate, how it will uh, sustain the commitments that it has made and, and uh, how we can have a, uh, uh, the security and the stability of the region within the, the newly existing uh, situation. But do you see this as a disengagement by the Biden administration making this region more unstable? Uh, no, I, I don't think the United States as a superpower, as a, a power with both interests and very deep relationships with the uh, countries of the Middle East uh, is in a position or can disengage. I think it will continue to rely on its uh, traditional relationships and uh, partnerships, among them with Egypt, a strategic ally, and will uh, continue to uh, extract its interests and also uh, provide the uh, security and the uh, stability that the re region needs. My assessment as I got on the plane to come to Cairo is there is a tectonic shift in discussions between the nations here in, in the Middle East. Would you describe that between yourselves uh, and, and Turkey, the UAE and Turkey? There is, in my mind, a tectonic shift. Do you agree? Uh, not necessarily. I, I agree that the uh, region is undergoing a very turbulent uh, and volatile uh, situation where there has uh, been, uh, of course, uh, conditions that have not been uh, readily uh, contributing to the peace and security of the region. We have conflicts in Libya, in Yemen, in, uh, of course, the situation of terrorism and, and the threats, the current situation in Syria, in Lebanon. The, these are all uh, issues that have to be addressed, and uh, I think it is in the best interest of the nations of the region to uh, ex expand the uh, communications and the uh, understandings that can provide for the security and stability. You're about to enter round two of discussions with Turkey, Egypt-Turkey, upgrade the bilateral relationship. What does that mean? Will you restore diplomatic ties? Well, at this stage, uh, this is the second round of uh, exploratory talks between uh, Egypt and Turkey. Uh, this comes at the invitation of the Turkish government. Uh, we have... Uh, been eager to find a resolution and to find uh, the necessary formula for uh, uh, re regaining the normal relations between the two countries. But I think at this stage, we still have to uh, uh, evaluate the outcome of this uh, second round of discussions uh, and primarily uh, the context of the bilateral relations. Uh, the bilateral relations and, and certain measures that uh, were taken by Turkey uh, need to be uh, somehow addressed uh, and uh, when we are satisfied that those issues have been resolved uh, that will uh, open the door for further uh, progress. I have a lot to get through and time of course is a natural enemy but if I said to you in a succinct way what do you need to see from the Turks to move forward to restore bilateral relations what would that be? We have provided Turkey with a uh, with our 
assessment and our uh, uh, requirements. And requirements. I, I think they, they uh, very well comprehend and can uh, fulfill all of these issues uh, and we hope that they do so that we can move forward. On the Renaissance Dam, it's a very contentious issue, uh, obviously, uh, and you've tried to arbitrate with Ethiopia on several times. President Sisi has said all options are on the table, including military action. Sir, are you prepared to take military action against Ethiopia? No, the president has never uh, indicated that he would be taking military action, but I think the terminology has always been that for any country, uh, all options are always open, and we have uh, committed ourselves to the negotiating process. We have endorsed uh, the negotiations over the last 10 years, and we have uh, supported the negotiations of the African Union under the chairmanship of President Shesekedi, and uh, continue to seek an enhanced role for the observers to uh, help the parties to find a resolution. Will you do everything to avoid conflict? Uh, definitely. I, I think nobody seeks conflict. Uh, we have uh, uh, been committed over 10 years to a peaceful resolution of this issue uh, based on international law, based on best practice. And I think uh, we uh, still uh, would seek that the political will of the Ethiopian government is demonstrated by signing an agreement. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Foreign Minister. Thank you for the welcome to the country. I hope that we come back again. Sama Shokri, the, the Foreign Minister for Egypt, joining me. Uh, it's been a great trip. And I have got to say, when it, comes to, when it comes to offices, sir, I think you're on a winning trade. Happy to have you. Thank you very much, sir. Joining us now is the man himself, David Rubenstein, the co-founder of the Carlyle Group and, of course, the host of this fantastic show. Reid Hoffman, a really important person to be talking to at this moment, where we see this tech battle uh, really heating up between the U.S. and China. Where did he sort of throw his hat in terms of which region had the upper hand in this uh, tussle? There's no doubt that uh, the Silicon Valley has had the upper hand for decades. But he does think that China is now competing effectively with the United States. And you have these two polar uh, opposites, in effect, China with one system for entrepreneurial activity and Silicon Valley with another. And he thinks that China is doing what he calls blitzscaling, which means building very large companies. That's what's happened in the United States with Amazon and Apple and Netscape, very large companies that operate at scale. And he thinks that China is doing the same thing. Well, that's the bigger picture, and yet the micro picture has been an increasing crackdown on some of these behemoths and some of the blitzkrieged uh, companies or the companies that have benefited from their approach. How does he view that? I mean, does he believe that that will foster innovation or that potentially put a damper on it by raising regulatory uncertainty? Well, clearly, in China, it wants to make it clear that the Chinese government is the most important thing in Chinese society. And once the entrepreneurs recognize that, they can go about their business. But clearly, China doesn't want uh, companies that are more powerful than the president of China or their entrepreneurs being more powerful. So they have had some kind of crackdown or or regulatory constraints. We haven't had quite the same thing in the United States. So the American entrepreneurs are freer to build companies without the kind of constraints and concerns that now some people have in China. Well, talking about building companies, David, it's, it's Kaylee Lines in New York. Good morning to you. You mentioned there Apple, Amazon, these behemoths we have seen grow here in the U.S. Does he believe that those companies are getting too large? Well, he doesn't say that in part because, remember, he is uh, a person, I, I think he's still on the Microsoft board. He sold LinkedIn, which he built, uh, to Microsoft. So it'd be difficult for him to say that Microsoft is becoming too big and too powerful. So he doesn't really say that. He does say that, that we now have five of these gigantic technology companies in the United States, and we're going to get 10 of them soon. 
So a company that's like, say, Salesforce will become one of those kind of companies, or Netflix will become one of those kind of companies, which they are, they're, they're big now, but they're going to be much, much bigger. So he doesn't worry because he thinks there are going to be more and more of these gigantic companies, not fewer and fewer of them. And are those the kind of companies he's interested in getting into now, or what would he favor? Well, he's a venture investor. He's at Greylock, a very good venture firm. He's an entrepreneur who built LinkedIn and helped to build PayPal, but he's also a venture investor. He was an early investor in Facebook, an early investor in Airbnb. So he likes to find young entrepreneurs who are really talented, have a good idea, and back them. So he's an unusual mix of both being an entrepreneur and a venture investor and a very successful angel investor as well. David, uh, yourself also being a pretty big investor in companies at the earlier stages, there is a question of what the structure of such dominant tech behemoths at the top does for innovation for some of the smaller companies. In other words, how much of a competitive competitive advantage can they have and how much uh, can they get with respect to data, which reigns supreme? There's no doubt that the large technology companies now have a lot of data and they're using it, they, they would say, for their purposes, their corporate purposes. But there's always going to be entrepreneurs, always somebody with a new idea, somebody that is very creative. And he likes to back people who he thinks have a vision of where they're going to go and have the capability of getting there. And it's a different skill set than being an entrepreneur where you have to have the vision yourself and build a company. But Reed Hoffman is a very talented individual. And when he's in the room, it's pretty clear he's always the smartest person in the room but he doesn't tell people that. And so he has a certain modesty that I think reflects the fact that he's very secure in who he is and he's very well respected by his colleagues. Lots of times you have very bright people and behind their back, people are snickering about them because their ego is too big or they're not as talented as they think. Hmm. That's not the case with Reed. David, I want to bring the conversation back to where we started, and that is China. We've heard a chorus of of large name investors over recent weeks kind of weighing in on the debate on whether or not you can invest there. You have George Soros on one side saying that would be a tragic mistake. You have BlackRock and Ray Dalio on the other. I'm just wondering what your take is on China, given the crackdown that we are seeing. I think George Soros's point had to deal with uh, geopolitical issues and and government constraint issues and things that are different than whether China is going to build companies that if you invest in them, you'll do well. As a general rule of thumb, I do think investing in China will produce very good profits. You have to get comfortable with some of the constraints you have in China, but there's no doubt there are constraints in lots of countries as well. So I wouldn't say that China is not a good place to invest. I think it's a very good place to invest, but there are some challenges you have to get comfortable with, and you have to get comfortable that some of the governmental actions are not going to be ones you might be comfortable with if they were happening in this country, for example. Has your shift focused at all with respect to your, uh, your, your appreciation of China investments, even with Xi Jinping's recent uh, pronouncements around the common good? Well, right now, you have to remember, China has 1.3 billion people, and it's going to be a gigantic market for some time. But the Chinese governmental system is different than Americans, and you have to get comfortable with that. And so if you're not comfortable with that, then you can invest in many other places. But if you're comfortable with the fact that China is going to have a heavy regulatory hand in things, you can you can get comfortable with investing there. Um, we have invested there. I have invested there. I'm not pulling out of China. I think it's actually a very good place to invest. But every country has its challenges. The United States has challenges, too. You can't argue that we have all the kind of uh, governmental actions that everybody is comfortable with here either. <laughs> David Rubenstein, you make a very valid point. Nobody would disagree. David Rubenstein, host of Peer to Peer Conversations on Bloomberg Television, co-founder of the Carlyle Group. Don't miss that. At 9 p.m. tonight, Reid Hoffman, an entrepreneur who helped co-found LinkedIn, speaking about the landscape for technology at a time when it really is preeminent. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.